This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Before I get to the good news from Bjorn Lomborg, the world is not coming to an end, in fact, just the opposite, I want to take a quick look at the week ahead, and here's what you can expect. We'll get the usual oil and gas monthly reports, how much inventory they have, residential sales will be coming out, durable goods sales estimates will be coming out. But of course, the big news will be once again trade. The Trump administration, thankfully, is recognizing, even though they praise tariffs, They're recognizing tariffs aren't good for the market, which is why they announced just this week that autos and auto parts tariffs, they're going to be put off for at least six months. And they'll try to get the China talks back on track again. Anytime there's any kind of optimism that we may get rid of these tariffs or at least not go into a trade war, the market goes up. Whenever it looks like we might go off the cliff, the market goes down. So I think we'll see some more noise on the Chinese trade front, but it's going to be a long one. And one thing, again, both sides must recognize, both have to save face if you want an agreement. Whether it's Chinese winning on removing all tariffs, the Trump administration trumpeting that they have enforcement mechanisms in place, that the Chinese are going to buy hundreds of billions of dollars of goods and services from the U.S., primarily natural gas and agricultural products, opening up markets, both have to be able to go home and say, you see, I done good. And now what you've been waiting for, Bjorn Lomborg. He's the president of a think tank he founded, Copenhagen Consensus Center, and an author. His most recent book is Prioritizing Development, a Cost-Benefit Analysis of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Bjorn Lomborg is one of those unusual individuals who can see a problem but not be swayed by conventional wisdom. He will acknowledge human beings are a big cause of climate change. He brings to this whole debate a rational view and an optimistic view that will enable us to deal with these issues and do so in a way in which we can also deal effectively with other issues such as uh, poverty, water, malnutrition, and the like. And I think as people realize that we don't have unlimited resources and we do have to make choices, well then, I think he's going to be the wave of the future. We can get the best of all worlds. Bjorn, thank you for joining us. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. One of the things that you make a point of is that despite all the problems in the world, Uh, we're actually getting better off overall. Uh, Can you walk us through that? Start with, for example, extreme poverty. We don't see the headline each day. 137,000 people climb out of extreme poverty. First, walk us through extreme poverty and then the other measures that actually things are getting better in many ways. Back in 1820, we estimate more than 90% of all people were living in extreme poverty. That is less than a dollar a day. Uh, Just a couple of years ago, that number went, for the first time in human history, below 10%. 
So we've literally gone from a world where 90% were poor to a world where 90 plus percent are not poor. That's an amazing achievement. You also uh, made, have made mention, uh, let's talk about longevity. First, infant mortality, and then uh, longevity when you get past uh, childhood, what you call the lifespan inequality is shrinking. First, more in infant mortality. We've gone from a situation where the average life expectancy of an infant born in 1900 was about 30 years of age. Today, that number is about 71 years. We've literally more than doubled a lifetime on this planet. Now, as you point out, a significant part of this is because we've managed to uh, tackle child mortality. Uh, uh, Bill Gates loved to point out, and I think that is really, really useful to know, despite the fact that we have about the same number of children in the world, uh, uh, below five. In 1990, 12 million kids died each year. Today, only, and I put the only in inverted commas, only 6 million of them die. Now, that is also one of the reasons why you've seen life expectancy increase. You still do that when you get up in your 60s. You actually still see increases uh, over the last 100 years, significant increase of 10, 15 years of, uh, of lifespan. Now, in the, between the rich countries and developing countries, you point out the lifespan inequality is shrinking as well. Right. What's happened is we've seen a dramatic development of more people in the middle class of both in India and China and elsewhere that have gotten a lot better off. They've basically been pulled out of poverty. And so if you look at global inequality, you've actually seen a decline in inequality. The developing countries are not only catching up with us in terms of money, but they're also catching up with us in terms of longevity. Now, uh, in the area of pollution, too, uh, progress has right. been made, both indoor pollution, which people don't in the developed world fully realize the extent of that, and outdoor pollution. Uh, talk first about uh, indoor pollution. So, so the biggest problem from air pollution is indoor air pollution. And that's because almost 3 billion people cook and keep warm with dirty fuels like dung and cardboard, wood, stuff they can get their hands on to cook their meals and to keep warm in the winter and, and at night. And that means most of the huts in Africa and many places in Asia actually are about 10 times as polluted as the worst cases of outdoor air pollution in Beijing or in uh, New Delhi or in Bangkok. But actually what we've seen is the indoor air pollution problem has gotten a lot less because people are coming out of poverty. Because once you get out of poverty, you actually buy LPG or you buy something that means you don't have to pollute your indoors to cook a meal. For the outdoor air pollution, the picture is a little more differentiated. Very clearly in the rich world, we have cut our emissions dramatically, partly because of economic terms, partly because of uh, environmental regulation. And since 1585, uh, so you know, uh, around in the medieval times, uh, air pollution went up and up and up in London till about 1890. But from 1890 until today, it's basically been one long decline in air pollution. So what's happened is air in London is now cleaner than it's ever been since medieval times. In the developed world, they're still making the trade-off that we did. They're getting rich, and yes, they're getting more polluted, but they're making a trade-off that I think almost everyone would make. 
But eventually, of course, they will also get to a point where they say, now we're rich enough to actually be able to cough less. And you're seeing that, for instance, in Mexico City and other places where people are now rich enough to say we'd like cleaner air. And uh, water pollution, too, is uh, getting better, right? We're clean, starting to clean up some of these bodies of water. Well, uh, in, again, uh, in the developed world, the issue is very much cleaning up the water. You, know, you can actually go bathe in the Hudson in, in New York, and that's wonderful. And you certainly couldn't do that uh, 20 or 30 years ago, and, and you probably couldn't do that for the last 100, 150 years. When you're rich, you can really afford to worry about uh, also having clean water. But much more importantly for most people in the developing world is access to clean drinking water and sanitation so you don't actually pollute the water for everyone else and you uh, contribute to large amounts of infectious disease. And that has increased dramatically. So we're now at a point uh, where about 80% of everyone has access uh, to clean drinking water and about 70% to sanitation. That's amazingly much better than what it used to be. But there's still some, uh, some uh, ways to go. Well, you make a, a very interesting point on developing countries, that uh, growth initially may lead to more outdoor pollution, but the very fact of wealth creation ends up solving environmental problems rather than increasing them. You mentioned Beijing, Mexico City. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, and the point there, here is to recognize that these are not mutually exclusive. It's not that you should say, oh, we shouldn't worry about the environment at all. But we should recognize that one of the main ways that you can afford to worry about environment is that you have taken away the pressure from a lot of these other concerns, namely that my kids are dying from easily curable infectious diseases, they don't have any food, they get a terrible education, you know, all these other issues. And once you fix those issues, and those are fixed by growth and ability to have economic uh, impact, once you get that, you can afford to and care about the environment in a very different way. You make an interesting point about uh, what you call forest cover. In the eastern United States, for example, we have more forests now than we did 100 years ago, even though we have uh, three times as many people. Exactly, and that's because it actually increases your house value. We know this from a lot of studies. If you have a forest close to your house, it increases the value because people like having forests. So we've moved away from a very resource-intensive focus, which was also a fairly poor focus on uh, agriculture and farming, uh, towards a place where we have a service industry and where we have much more opportunity and can actually have better environmental quality at the same time. In terms of food, what we call synthetic fertilizers actually are good, not evil. Oh, totally. Possibly one of the best inventions that we got uh, was the Harbour-Borsch method that was developed in the early last century, uh, which basically showed a way to get nitrogen out of the air. Uh, remember, nitrogen is absolutely crucial for plants. Uh, we estimate today that this process of getting uh, uh, nitrogen out of the air, and we use mostly fossil fuels to do that, uh, underpins about half the world's population. So if you didn't have that, if you want it to go all organic, which also includes not using artificial fertilizer, uh, we basically wouldn't know how to feed half the world's population. Now, there's some ways that you could do that by basically raising all forests and raising all other areas and growing lots and lots of legumes, but it would be really hard and we would have much, much harder uh, time both feeding everyone and certainly feeding them with the things that they would actually like to eat. Now, on climate change, uh, you say 
let's get away from the debate about human made. You say it's human made, but what we how we've responded to climate change, global warming, has been uh, doing in essence using a lot of resources for very little return. First, what are the negatives of global warming, and then touch on there are some positives. Hit, hit yeah. the negatives first, then the positive, then uh, what we do about it. Sure. Uh, so, Steve, you just took away my whole talking point, but no, that's good. Uh, so, so you know, fundamentally, yes, global warming is real, and in the long run, it will mostly be a negative impact. So, you know, if you if you take a place that's very well known for me, you know, Copenhagen, uh, we've been built to live in a fairly cold environment. Uh, if you go to another place, you know, Miami, uh, built in a fairly warm uh, climate. If you change the temperature, either make it colder or make it warmer, both of these places are going to struggle because suddenly they don't have the right infrastructure. So we have to adapt our infrastructure. That also goes from rising sea levels, which will obviously have cost. There will be issues. So you will have more heat deaths. You will have uh, probably fewer, but likely stronger hurricanes. Uh, and there will be costs. That's why global warming is a real problem. Now, as you also mentioned, there's also going to be positives. Certainly some places like, for instance, Denmark, but also Russia and Canada and many other places where it's pretty cold, getting warmer is actually a net positive. Yes, you have to get more air conditioning, but you will save much, much more on your heating costs. Likewise, when you look across the world, there are many more people dying from cold deaths than dying from heat deaths. So while heat deaths will go up, we actually expect that more people will not die from cold deaths. That's a positive. And the UN Climate Panel put together all the best knowledge that we have about uh, climate change every five years or so. Uh, and their last latest report essentially means that the impact will be the equivalent of each person around the world losing on average somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of his or her income. Now, that's a problem. That's a, a little bit equivalent of a one-year recession. But it's by no means the end of the world. And unfortunately, a lot of the conversation around global warming tend to you know, uh, uh, project these uh, uh, dystopic, almost end of the world kind of scenarios. And that's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about a problem. If you do it really smartly, you can reduce temperatures a little bit by the end of the century. But please, please, please. Don't do what the UN and many others are talking about, get down to 2 degrees centigrade or even 1.5 degrees centigrade. First of all, it's probably not even doable, but even trying to get there will simply mean we'll end up wasting huge amounts of resources, you know, paying, you know, 10, 15% to solve 1 or 2% of GDP loss. is a terrible way to help the future. It's a real issue, but right now we're trying policies that cost a lot and achieve very little. One of the positives, and then we'll get to uh, the, these huge costs, is that uh, right now global warming is increasing the green areas of the world, equivalent of North American continent. Exactly. The reality is, as green CO2 emissions have increased and CO2 concentrations have increased, we are actually seeing more green stuff on the planet. And you know, just one uh, sort of surprising point you mentioned that we estimate right now over the last 30 years, we've created a green area, the equivalent of the U.S., uh, the continental U.S., which is a huge deal. We've simply made the earth greener. That's wonderful. Uh, and by the end of the century, if we don't do anything about global warming, we actually estimate we will have as much biomass in the world as we used to have 
before humans started cutting down anything. But again, let's also remember, this is one positive, but there's also going to be a significant number of negatives. And overall, again, the negatives outweigh the positives. It's great that there's more green stuff, but maybe it's not the right green stuff. It's not the green stuff we like. And certainly it may not be the green stuff that's where you live right now. Now, this gets to the way they're combating uh, global warming, climate change today, spending literally hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year starting with alternative fuels. And you make the point that the state of development of alternative fuels, solar and wind, are in the infancy. You talk about a technology deficit. Explain. Mm. What we need to do, and this is the point that I've constantly been emphasizing, instead of making these enormous promises that basically just uh, constitute a huge amount of subsidy to ineffective solar and wind and other technologies, and basically suppress economic activity for very little climate benefit, we should be focusing a lot more on our investments into green energy R&D. Because if we can make future green energy so cheap that everyone will want it, we fix global warming. Whereas if we can't, we will never be able to do more than just tinker a little bit on the edges, uh, spend a lot of people's money, and then eventually run out of them and give up. This leads to two things. One is uh, what, uh, what you call energy poverty. You look at Germany, electricity costs two to three times the U.S. In the U.K., since 2006, real energy costs have gone up 36%, while incomes have gone up only 4%. There's a real price here. And that's one of the important points to recognize that when you do many climate policies, they almost invariably end up hurting the poor most. And that's the poor and the rich countries. So it's the people who spend a large proportion of their income on just simply being able to pay for their gasoline to get to work and pay for their electricity bills and pay for heating their homes so their kids don't freeze. Now, uh, quickly go over the Paris Agreement, Paris Accord, where you make the point that uh, you're going to spend huge amounts of resources that are going to have a negligible impact, even if we did everything that that agreement said people are going to, we're going to do in the future. Massive waste of resources. Walk us through that. Yeah. 99% useless. So, so the Paris Agreement is really an outcome of the fact that we've been trying to do climate policy for almost 30 years now. And we failed for 30 years. Why? Because essentially you're saying, could you please promise to do something that's going to be harmful for your nation, but that would help the world a little bit? If everyone does everything they promised in Paris, we will cut 1% of what it takes to get to the two degree target, which is the higher end promise from the Paris Agreement. So basically, we'll achieve almost nothing of what we promised at an incredibly high cost. And unfortunately, if you if you do the numbers, it probably turns out that for every dollar we spend on these sorts of promises, we will end up avoiding climate damage worth three to six cents. That's a terrible way to spend a dollar to only get three to six cents of benefit. We could do so much better if we focused on smarter climate policies and smarter policies around the world. You mentioned the need for what you call deep scrutiny which gets to your very exciting work and the focus of your new book on developing countries. Walk us through first cost-benefit analysis and what you did with countries like Bangladesh. So we basically get the cost, both the social, the economic, and the environmental cost of a policy. Then we look in the same way 
at what are the benefits? What are the social benefits? You know, for instance, for vaccinations that kids don't die. What are the economic benefits that they will become more productive because they didn't have infections uh, that actually led them to have um, you know less brain capacity? And if there were environmental benefits or not in, in this particular example, then we also in, uh, incorporate that. And basically, you then get a sense of saying for every dollar you spend, how much good can you do? It's a very, very simple thing, but it's also an incredibly powerful thing. And that's what we've done. We've both done this for the world and we've done it for individual nations. And actually, the book that you just mentioned was our uh, attempt to try to help the U.N., set better targets. They, they've set targets for the next 15 years until 2030. And we tried to tell them, please focus on the very best policies first. Of course, that, <laughs> that didn't happen. The, the UN decided to basically say, no, no, we're just going to go ahead and promise everything to everyone all the time, everywhere, uh, which is, of course, the exact opposite of prioritization. But what's now happened is that individual countries are left with a situation where there's so many promises out there. You're not going to be able to do all of them. You're not going to be able to do even a fraction of them. So what should we prioritize? And then we're back to saying, let's start thinking about where can you do the most good. And that's what we did, for instance, for Bangladesh. Tuberculosis is now the biggest infectious killer in the world. I saw the number 1.7 million people a year. And in Bangladesh, yeah. uh, TB, there's shame to it. So that was uh, priority number one. What happened there? We have off-patent drugs to deal with most of the problems. There's a huge issue of multidrug resistance that actually costs a lot of money. So both in Bangladesh and in India, it's only about 4% of the people who have TB who have multidrug-resistant TB. But because the drugs and the regimens are so costly, it almost takes up 50% of the budget. What we pointed out was you can very cheaply save a lot of people. You, we're not talking about saving everyone, but you can save a lot of people, and especially the drug-resistant people, which means that you will dramatically lower cost. You will save a lot of people in the prime of their life. Remember, TB doesn't typically affect ch children. It affects people right when they've become parents, right when they're starting their productive career. You can, for very little money, do an enormous amount of good. The Bangladeshi government, much to their to their great respect, they actually picked up on this and they're now spending more money on dealing with TB and doing so in a very effective way that will help a lot more people not die from TB at a very low cost. Now, one of the surprising things you found in uh, Bangladesh in terms of a cost benefit was e-procurement, uh, having computers uh, deal with the uh, bids when uh, people would bid for government contracts and the like. You mentioned thugs would sometimes keep competitors from submitting bids. And you came up with the analysis that $1 on e-procurement saved $663 in, uh, loss in uh, preventing corruption and, and waste. Uh, tell us about that. We actually did a study with 4% of procurement spending uh, from Bangladesh, so a significant amount of money, and looked at what was the impact of, of, of doing e-procurement. And the surprising thing is it actually delivered higher quality at 12% lower cost. And if you look at that, you could probably increase this to about 95% of procurement across Bangladesh uh, government spending. That would save Bangladesh every year about $700 million. So for very little investment, 
you could basically make Bangladesh $700 million better off. Uh, now, it's two years later, and much of it has been implemented. Not all of it, and it's not all successful, but it certainly is going a great way towards being much, much more effective. And again, the beauty of cost-benefit analysis is you start realizing where can you have a huge impact at very little cost. Another area of getting micronutrients to kids, uh, $1, $19 of benefit. Yeah, nutrition is not just about avoiding starvation. If you get better food to kids in the first two years and actually also in the nine months before in the womb, you can make sure that these kids have much better brains. And that means when they get into school, even if they get into a pretty crappy school, which is very likely, they will learn more. They will learn more per year. They'll also stay a little longer at school. And that means they'll end up when they become adults to be much more productive. One of the surprises was among very, very poor people in agriculture, the idea of cash transfers. Yeah, who, who, who wouldn't want some extra money? But they are much more interested in tell us how to become more productive in agriculture instead of just giving us some cash. Well, it turns out to be a much better investment, yes, to, to for instance, give them innovation, give them, uh, for instance, better yield, uh, yielding uh, varieties of seed. But if you just give money, uh, we have evidence that show it does have benefits. And especially if you do it well, uh, if you do it sort of through graduation programs where you basically give people uh, an ability to make more money for themselves. So generate benefits, both in, in terms of not being as poor, they are better able to give their kids an education. Uh, they're better able to take care of their kids' health. They will actually, uh, in the long run, get slightly higher incomes. But for per dollar spent, the best thing you can get is probably around $2 back on the dollar. Whereas if you focus on some of the smarter policies on, for instance, getting better grain or better uh, knowledge out, you can do two, three, four, and even 10 of dollars worth of good per dollar spent. So you can do a lot more good. Brings us to uh, loan forgiveness. Sounds very nice, but you point out that <laughs> uh, using those resources on better facility uh, st storage facilities, better transport, better seeds, a uh, huge amount of waste because you don't have uh, basic storage facilities in places like India, you get a much more better return. Uh, obviously, that's politically incredibly beneficial because all the people who had loans will vote for you because they'd love to not have to pay back their loans. The problem is twofold. Uh, partly, it doesn't actually help the really poor because they couldn't afford to get the loans, but also because it creates moral hazard. Basically, banks are going to be worried that people are going to try to get loans again. They won't actually be able to pay them off, but they are hoping that the politicians will again forgive them. It's also incredibly costly. Uh, last year, it probably cost India about half a percent of its GDP for just three states to forgive these loans. So it's hugely costly, and the benefits are probably less than a dollar back in the dollar. In closing, why is there such adverse reaction to your work? Uh, I know you're hitting sacred cows, but uh, the vituperation is, is rather astonishing for something that you point out do the cost-benefit analysis, it, it seems rather clear. <laughs> well, many of the places where we can point out here we're wasting money or not doing very much good is where we spend lots and lots of money. And so, for instance, on climate, there is a huge lobby that has already decided the right way to go is, as we talked about, put up more solar power and more wind. 
And if you go against that argument, you're event- <laughs> obviously pissing off a lot of these people. If you're going to help the world prioritize, if you're going to help pointing out where are we doing well and where are we doing less well, you'll inevitably end up annoying some people. But that's fine. This is not a, you know, a, a likability contest. At the end of the day, I think the only really indicator is, did we actually end up making a better world? And there the answer simply is yes, because we are spending more on TB. We are spending more on some of these very, very simple things like e-procurement in Bangladesh and many other things. So in Haiti, where we did the same sort of work, uh, they're now uh, adding food uh, additives, so basically iron and folic acid, and it's saving 150 babies from dying every year. It's saving a quarter of a million people from being anemic. It was very low cost. The president and his wife loved this project, and it's now being implemented with USAID money. So again, there are lots of sunshine stories, but if it takes uh, also annoying some people, well, there you go. So looking at uh, what's ahead for all of the problems, ultimately rationality can rule. Thank you for doing your part to make that happen. Thank you, Bjorn. Thank you very much, Steve. And here's my read of the week, a very short piece. You can find it on foxbusiness.com by Carol Roth. The title is Five Truths About Capitalism That Are Often Misunderstood. She leads off with, what is blamed on capitalism is almost always not capitalism, particularly the student debt crisis and the health care crisis. A brief read, but an enlightening read. She gets to the point, and she will help give you a new insight on this issue that is going to be dominating the political campaign, capitalism versus socialism. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.